The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, thank you, Dan, so much. That was fascinating and interesting on many, many levels. Uh, we're going to take about 15 minutes to do a little bit of q and I'm going to start with one question, and then I'm going to open it to the rest of the audience. And uh, this is, has nothing to do with leadership, but you were, telling, you were talking about being up in the U2 and that if the engine quit, you just kind of go down to a lower altitude and start the engine up or you glide in and land somewhere as if that was like getting on the 405 freeway and going home tonight. That's much more dangerous. Yeah, than I'm so. expecting, yeah. I mean, did you ever have something like that happen when you were flying or were you fortunate enough not to, and it didn't sound like you were ever ejected out of the plane. So. No, fortunately not. Um, I, I, I had a good career. I didn't have any of those types of serious emergencies. Uh, and actually, uh, when I was flying the airplane, the J-75 Pratt & Whitney engine was a wonderful engine, very reliable. But if you did have a problem, um, you had to descend to about 45,000 feet where the air was thick enough to turn the turbine so you could relight uh -huh. the engine. And so you did have that sort of you know, anxiety from whatever altitude you were at to, to descend down to, to 45,000. Because remember, during this time, this suit that I was talking about has inflated. And so you're sort of like the Pillsbury Doughboy now. You're trying to fly the airplane and at the same time get the, get the airplane descending. When they replaced that engine with the General Electric engine, they uh, really enhanced the uh, restart capability so you don't have to do that. You don't have to drop so So that's been a big improvement. Did you learn any things about dealing with stress and fatigue in that role? Because I mean, obviously working for 13 hours in a plane by yourself and everything, we all deal with stress and fatigue at work. So you were in a fairly unique, high stress, high fatigue kind of environment. What did you learn about managing that that helped you to sort of deal with it? Yeah. Well, the mind is a funny thing. And when you think about you know, closing that faceplate as an example, you know, your mind plays games on you in the beginning and you get stressed because, okay, now I can't touch my nose, now I can't touch my eye, I've got an itch over here, I can't touch that. And then you get in the airplane and you, you, know, you get busy and you set off, but then you get, you know, typically seven, eight hours where you're sort of sitting and monitoring the systems. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do, right? And I found that the best way for me to sort of work through that was I had a grease pencil and I would write on the grease pencil, uh, with the grease pencil on the canopy, if it was a 10-hour mission or a 12-hour mission, I would put a tick mark for every hour. And then I would decide, okay, well, what am I gonna do during that hour to sort of keep my mind occupied? Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, you'd be very busy with the takeoff and getting everything set. And then, of course, the last hour was busy with the descent and getting ready for the landing. So what about these 10 hours here? What are we gonna do? And you would come up with ways to keep yourself mm -hmm. you know, involved and keep yourself engaged. Well. The relevance of that to, to a business community, if you think about, just making it up here, but if you think about one of our uh, team members working at Albertsons in a deli, and you have long periods of, you know, of time where you maybe you know, aren't tr truly engaged, you, know, you don't have a customer to wait mm -hmm. on, maybe you're not uh, you're thinking about things uh, happening at home and so forth. If you don't have things for people to do to focus on those, right. then it can make for a long day. And long day means that you get frustrated and you think about, you know, goodness, they're not really treating me really well here. I ought to file a grievance. I ought to, I ought to go do something, you know. And, and, and people, people don't really want that. So the best way I found to, you know, sort of avoid the stress and the anxiety was to have something going all the time. The best uh, workforce that I've ever had the opportunity to partner with outside of the military 
are those workforces that are very busy. I've had manufacturing facilities where, you know, they're very, very busy, and everybody's happy, right? And if you go to a supermarket, the happiest days in the supermarket are around the holidays because you're ha you know, stuff's happening. It's busy. Mm -hmm. It's busy. It's when you have those um, sort of slower periods right. that you start thinking about the stress and start thinking about all of the anxiety and, and other things that uh, sort of work their way into the mind. Great. Well, I'm going to open the to the questions to audience, so we'll start over here. Carlton. Carlton. How many G's did you experience and for how long, <laughs> and what did you learn from that? So the U-2 is a, a low G airplane, uh, two and a half G's maximum. So uh, as compared to fighter jets that are pulling eight or, or nine or maybe 10 G's uh, for short periods of time. So we didn't have that issue to have to deal with. Um, the problem that we had wasn't G-related, Carlton, so much as it was um, stagnant hypoxia because you're sitting in one place for 10 hours or 12 hours. And so the blood tends to drain. And you're sitting in a cabin that's uh, pressurized to 30,000 feet um, because that's as good as it gets with the seals, uh, particularly on an airplane that's uh, 1967 vintage. So that's the problem in the U-2. It's not so much the pulling of the Gs as it is um, you know, uh, dealing with the physiological aspects of sitting for long periods of time and then having that dehydration that comes with uh, you know, being in a, in a cockpit that's dry at 30,000 feet. Very good. All right, other questions? Yes, over here. Thanks. And if I don't see you when you raise your hand, you know, kind of jump up and down because the <laughs> lights are really bright and I can't see all of you very well. Uh, they say that astronauts that go up spend all of their time on the ground thinking about going back up again. Did, were you aware, two questions, were you aware of your last mission and what did that look like? And then there, there was a certain journey from, from flying U-2s to, to CEO. Can you give us a brief you know, roadmap of that? Well, I appreciate that. You know, the, the, the reality is, and I think most pilots, whether you're flying high altitude military planes or you're just flying puddle jumpers, um, once you get it into your bloodstream, it's tough to get out, right? So you, you're always thinking about it. And, um, you know, my wife, even to this day, in fact, today's our anniversary. We, we've been married 31 years. Oh, I feel really guilty. I know. Oh, I'm spending it with you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn the dean down for that. But, um, but she still kids me because wherever we are, if I hear airplane, I, I, I can't help but sort of fixate on the airplane even when she's giving me important instructions, unfortunately. But, um, but, but, but that's kind of the way it is. It just gets into your system. And, you know, I miss the flying, um, and I miss the, uh, the fulfillment of being able to plan a mission, go execute the mission, land, and knowing that, you know, you, you did something uh, important. I, I felt like after every one of those flights that, um, you know, that something good had happened out of that. Um, and that's important kind of to take away in business as well, right? That, you know, you don't just have this sort of grind that lasts 30 years and then somebody says, oh, you're, not, you're no longer on our team. But that you actually look towards uh, that higher purpose that I was commenting about and you sort of cling to that. Um, so I do miss that. I do miss that. You know, the, the CEO transition, um, I, I did carry a lot of these takeaways over into, uh, into business. Um, it's been an interesting ride because I, I didn't really um, grow up in sacking groceries like a lot of my colleagues. Um, but, you know, I bring a different perspective, I guess, uh, having been a part of the military. And, 
Um, I think other military members, I was talking with Brad earlier and others, you know, you take away a perspective. And that perspective, I think, um, serves you well um, as you get into business and as you get into other endeavors. But I do miss it terribly and still talk to a lot of my friends that are flying. And um, it, it, was, it, was a great, it was a great run. Lots of fun. We talked a little bit about this earlier in the podcast, but your last couple of roles have been kind of turnaround yes. situations. What from your kind of military experience that you're sharing with us has sort of helped that part of what you do? You had other roles and other yeah. uh, jobs along the way, but what about the turnaround? Can you link back and how you handled that to your military experience? There's, there's definitely um, some influence there because when you're flying the U-2 and it's a single pilot airplane, right? So if something goes wrong, there's not anyone coming to fix it. You're it. And, and over time, what happens is you develop, um, you know, this, this sort of sense of, you know what, I have to make this happen. I can't wait on someone else mm -hmm. to come tell me what the answer is going to be. I can get input from other people, and you can talk on the radio and get input. But at the end of the day, you have to make a decision. You only have so much fuel, right? You have to make a decision. What are we going to do here? And turnarounds are that way as well. Turnarounds aren't for everyone. And you have to make a lot of difficult decisions. Um, but, but the beauty of that is, is that if you're confident that you can gather the information, you know, work through whatever issues you might have, and then decide on what direction you're going to go, it really allows the organization to respond quickly. In a turnaround, time is the enemy. Mm -hmm. Time is the enemy. And so you understand when you start that there's going to be some folks that are upset with you because your perspective is to try to save the company first and then work on all the things that you would like to see unveiled in the company. So in the case of Albertsons, for example, uh, Albertsons is a great chain and wonderful people, but um, you have to stabilize uh, before you can start unveiling a turnaround plan to create competitive advantage. And that's a very, very difficult um, part of that journey. And typically what it means is, is that if, for example, you know, sales have eroded and the workforce is not aligned, it means you have to displace people from their livelihoods. No one hates doing that more than me. I've written about the fact that people are critical. Mm -hmm. But what you have to think about as a leader is, well, you know, if I don't, if I don't displace 1,000 folks now, I'm going to risk 20,000 folks just a few months from now. And I think uh, having served in the military, especially in a single, single seat airplane, where you have to decide. Uh, people aren't going to come tell you what the answer is. You just have to take the information and make the best decision. That was a relevant um, skill set. Very good. What else from the audience? Yes. Right here. I'm Kelly. Yep, Kelly, Kelly. Sorry. They were uh, classmates in their PKE class. We were cohorts. Yes, we were. Uh, I went to visit. Uh, United Texas with, with Brad, and he had to step out of the room. And we interviewed his uh, management team. Oh, very good. I came away, and I want to share this, is that he's talking about turnaround. Mm -hmm. uh, he took United Texas, and he was there seven years, and I was flabbergasted that there was intimacy, there was honesty. Uh, I would say that two-thirds of the workforce were baggers, and the baggers were on the same team as the management. Um, I think he got bored being so successful that he decided <laughs> to go into turnarounds. <laughs> the statement that we used in our class is that life is good. Dan, life is good. Amen. Very good. Well said, Kelly. Wonderful. Thank you, Kelly. Dear friend.
Other questions from the audience? Yes. I was, just, I was just curious, how often do the pilots eject from the plane, and what's the survival rate? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they never tell the pilots that information. <laughs> that wasn't in the training manual That wasn't in the training manual. No. That's not part no. of the brochure. <laughs> you know, fortunately, um, in this airplane, it's a very, very rare occurrence. There have been some ejections, some survival. Um, it's a sporty proposition to eject at high altitude. And this sequence that I described of free falling and so forth um, is a real challenge. There have been examples with high altitude ejections in the U-2 where uh, the pilot who ejected um, was falling, right, in that free fall from 70,000 plus to the 14,500 and felt like they'd been falling a lot longer than they'd actually been falling. And then um, activated manually the D-ring and, and, of course, that created problems because then, you know, the parachute opened at 35 or 40,000 feet and caused all sorts of issues. So those kinds of things have happened in the YouTube program. Uh, fortunately, uh, and it's, a, it's really a commendation for General Electric and for uh, Pratt & Whitney, these airplanes have been so reliable over the last 60 years, um, it's really quite extraordinary. And even if you do have a hiccup with the engine, the opportunity to restart it, has been um, exceptionally good. So it doesn't happen very often. It's very qu quite rare, actually. Um, and usually, the ejections in the U-2 tend to occur um, like over in Korea, where there's a lot of mountainous terrain. And so you'd be flying at high altitude, but you would get the thermal activity, mm -hmm. which would create some disruption in the airflow, and it would flame the engine out. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's a credit to the engineers that have manufactured, and all of us fly commercially. You know, it's, it's a very reliable form of transportation, both from a civilian perspective as well as a, a military perspective. And over those mountains in Korea, there's nowhere to glide to land. Yeah, it's a little tough. Yeah, it's a little tough. Well, let me end with this uh, question. Um, you're getting ready for another sort of career and life transition. You've had yeah. several of them. But as you kind of look back on kind of your life and career, uh, this is a two-part question, you know, what sort of are you most proud of or do you look back most fondly about the experiences so far? And then looking forward, what are you most excited about as you kind of look at this next phase of your life? Well, I think all of us um, would do ourselves uh, well to learn from whatever it is that we're doing. One of the benefits of, of moving around and having this sort of odd career path that I've had, I felt like every place that I had the opportunity to serve with colleagues, I learned something. I, I left better for having been there. And I, I think that that'll be true for my entire life. I hope it's true for, for all of you. Um, there's something really powerful about that. It's, it's, it gives you a sense of confidence. It, uh, it sort of adds to the tool chest, so to speak, uh, from, a, from a leadership perspective. Um, and because I had this sort of odd route where I started off in the military and I learned about that and, and training and how, how important that was, and, um, you know, I think back to the 12, 13 years in active duty military, uh, I really learned the benefit of training. You know, you take, a, you take a young person, 18, 19 years old, you give them training, and all of a sudden they're working on a $50 million airplane. I mean, that's really quite extraordinary. And it gives you a sense of just what young people are capable of doing if, if they get the kind of training. Well, that's something you take with you, right, into the next role. I had a friend, a mentor, who said to me one time, he said, Sanders, he said, let me tell you something. He said, there's only one thing worse than losing an employee you've trained, and that's keeping one you haven't. 
I thought, wow, you know, what a powerful thing. So as you go through each sort of journey, um, whether it's in the public sector or in the private sector or even nonprofit, if you can take these lessons, these little pearls of wisdom and add them to your uh, you know, quiver, right? It, it, it makes you a better leader. At the end of the day, you're a product of your time. And, and you, you look at leaders and you say, you know what, I don't want to do that, but this leader, I do want to do that, right? No, nobody's perfect, but you, do, you tend to, you tend to, to glean those, uh, those lessons. And I think that's very powerful. The, the biggest thing I've learned over the last 30 years is this, and I think it's a super important point for any of us, particularly in today's sort of volatile uh, workforce. Um, Max Dupree, the great sage uh, leader who was CEO of Herman Miller Furniture, he's written a number of great books. I think he's written, frankly, one of the best books on leadership ever written called Leading Without Power. It's one of my all-time favorites. I always carry copies. I give them to anybody that'll take them. I'm one of Max's advocates and he doesn't even know it. But, um, but Max said this years ago and I think it's so true. He said, the future can be created, not simply experienced or endured. The future can be created, not simply experienced or endured. I love that statement because it's a statement of hope, right? Not, there's, no, there's no ending. There's never an ending. So here's an example, right? Where this is real time. I was talking with, uh, with Demos about this uh, just before we started. Here we are, you know, I, I come to Southern California. We're going to do this turnaround. We're all fired up. We have a turnaround plan. We do, a, we do have to have a layoff in order to get the things right sized. We've got to get the things stabilized long enough to put the plan in motion. And then the board decides they want to sell the organization. Okay, it's their privilege to do that. Uh, Cerberus Private Equity buys the company. They say to me, Sanders, you're a nice guy, but you're not part of our team. So, so now we're, we're going to have a parting of the way. No problem, that, that, that happens, right? Some of my colleagues who are in this same position are really upset mm -hmm. because they, you know, they're essentially days from being unemployed, uh, thinking about how do I replace this income and so on and so forth. My view of it is to say, you know what, it's not an ending, it's a beginning. The future can be created, not simply experienced or endured. I don't have to go home on Thursday next week and say, all right, I don't have a job, so I guess I just sit here and wait until the phone rings, right? Max Dupree would tell us something different. So I've already got lots of ideas about how I want to uh, tackle this next, uh, this next chapter. I don't know uh, if it'll be a job that pays $20,000 a year, if it won't pay anything at all, if it pays $200,000. That's really not my focus. As John Wooden likes to say, right, when, uh, when Wooden was alive, he was, and I got a UCLA star here, Moran Golan, by the way, is here with me. Moran, wave your hand. She helped me with this presentation. But, but Wooden said, in essence, that success is really about peace of mind. Success is about, you know, maximizing your potential at a given point in time. Does that make sense? And so as I look forward and I think about, okay, well, what's the next chapter going to be? I'm not really stressed about that, but I am curious, right? I'm curious to say, well, what's out there? This is actually going to be fun. This is actually going to be fun. So it's not an ending, it's a beginning. And I would hope that for all of you that um, you know, find yourself in this uh, volatile workforce that might be in the same boat that I'm in today, that you would remember with this comment. And you might even go down and buy Max's book and you say, you know what, I can do this because I don't just have to endure it. I just don't have to accept what's happening. I can actually go out and create something. And if you're in the business of teaching students, if you're in the business of passing around MBAs and, and, and helping people with their lives, what a, great, what a great thought process to say that you're equipping people to go create a future that might not otherwise have happened. Isn't that true? 
So I hope that you'll find that to be the case. Dan, thank you so much. We are honored that you gave up your anniversary evening with your wife to be here, and please give her my deepest apologies. No, that's all right. And uh, and we're 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 just we're honored also to have you as a graduate of thank our you. programs to really represent what we stand for thank at you. Pepperdine and the Grazia School. So thank you so much for thank being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you.